Good evening. Glad to see you all this evening. I feel like some of you guys, I spent the whole day with you, with uh, the events that were here, but glad we can be gathered together as a family. In the 1950s, they conducted a very interesting study into the effects of social pressure, or peer pressure, as we might call it. And it was conducted by a, a doctor with the last name of Ash, I believe it's pronounced. He's a Polish fellow, so I might be getting that wrong. But what he did was he got eight college young men, and he got them into a room, and he gave them on the board a card with a line on it, and then they showed a picture of a card with three lines on it. And two of the lines on the card with three lines were either way shorter or way bigger than the line in the middle. And the line in the middle was the same line as the line on the other card. So in other words, he tried to get them to see, okay, so which line on these cards with the lines on it is the same line on this other card. Very clear to tell, very simple. And he got eight guys to come in and do it, but seven of them were instructed to give the wrong answer. And seven of them would go before the eighth man, the unsuspecting, unsuspecting man who didn't know. And over 50% of the time, the eighth man would just go along with what everybody else said. Even though he could tell that that was the wrong answer, and he could tell that objectively, these lines are not the same. He would just agree with everybody else who went before him. And if you've ever felt peer pressure, and you've ever felt compelled to go along with something just because everybody else is doing it, I think you could say that you felt that before. And you could see how even though it's completely irrational, even though it's not plugged into objective reality, you might be swayed or tempted to say, you know what? Yeah. Now that the seven people before me have done this, I think that that might be true, even though, obviously, it's wrong. Peer pressure is something we've all experienced from one time or another. Many of us even experience it now. This was originally a lesson for teens, but really, when you think about it, it's not just teenagers who experience peer pressure. It can be anybody of any age group, of any gender, anywhere in the world. You can experience peer pressure from either our friend groups our family, our role models, our culture, our workplace, it really doesn't matter. You can be influenced by your peers and those around you. So before we get into what the Bible has to say about this, some biblical examples and then going through some tips to help us fight it, we're going to look at really some definitions. What is pressure, peer pressure? Sometimes it's also referred to as social pressure. One source defines it as the pressure that people feel from their friends or peer group to believe certain things, whether good or bad. It can take the form of encouragement, requests, challenges, threats, or insults. Sometimes peer pressure is unspoken. In other words, I'm just doing it because everybody else around me is doing it. Nobody's convinced me to do this thing. Just I see everybody else doing this thing, so I'm going to jump and do it likewise. Another source defines peer pressure as something that occurs when a peer group or peers, sorry, when a peer group influences you to change your attitudes, decisions, behaviors, or beliefs. And it says peer pressure can come in many forms. It doesn't have to be, hey, yeah, you should do that. It could just be, well, everybody else is doing it, so I'm going to do it too. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have throughout our lives fallen into this. And sometimes peer pressure can be good. Sometimes it's good to have a group of people around you who are all seeking to do the right thing, the good thing. And you could be influenced by them and say, you know what? I am going to do what's right. But many times, unfortunately, oftentimes, peer pressure is a negative influence on us. 
And even though we might be one way at home or one way around people we know know us or, or one way in, in the church building, we might be at school or in the workplace or at a family reunion be influenced by those around us. So this evening, we're going to look at examples of peer pressure in the Bible, and then we're going to look at some biblical principles to help us overcome this phenomenon. So if you would look with me in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to see some peer pressure with Pilate, unfortunately. Luke 23, and we'll begin in verse number 13. And Pilate, to me, is one of the most interesting interesting uh, figures in the Bible because you can really, when you study the life of Pilate, you study the life of a man between a rock and a hard place. He did not, under any circumstances, want to crucify Jesus, but he also was on the last straw with Rome. And if he didn't keep peace in Judea, he was being shipped off to God knows where, and he didn't want that either. And we see this in Luke 23, if you will look there, Luke 23, beginning in verse 13, and notice, I have them underlined in my Bible, notice Uh, Pilate's words. Luke 23, beginning in verse number 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, notice this, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Wow, Pilate, thank you for being honest. But it doesn't really lead to anything. We keep reading. Neither did, it says, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Pilate says, we're going to discipline him, we're going to let him go. He doesn't need to be put to death. Notice this, though, verse 18, this is the key. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once again, and notice there he's begging them, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Notice this, verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding, with loud cries, that he should be crucified. And notice this, and their voices prevailed. It wasn't Pilate's cool and measured head. It wasn't him being warned of his wife of a dream who prevailed. It wasn't his reason for once, an examined way of approaching this case. It was the voice of the mob. And when you look at other gospel accounts, it says even that the chief priests and the scribes incited the people to yell out, crucify him. So what happens? Well, we know what happens. He releases the man, verse 25, Sorry, verse 24, Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. Why? They're urging him. He has no other choice. He releases the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. He had no backbone. And it's easy to look at him and say, man, that's a tough spot. It's easy to look at him and say, what were you thinking? But he did what he did, and he yielded to the loudest voices in the crowd. And the result was the crucifixion of a perfectly innocent man. Of course, providence is involved in this. This was the will of the Lord. But nevertheless, Pilate yielded to peer pressure. Think about Aaron with the golden calf in Exodus 32. Now, we're not told a whole lot about Aaron's heart. We're not told a whole lot about 
how Aaron viewed the world or how he viewed life, how faithful he was up to this point, we have to imagine after seeing the plagues firsthand, after being the mouthpiece of Moses for the people, right? After all that, you think he'd have a pretty good head on his shoulders. But remember, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. The people cry out, this Moses guy, we don't know what's going on. Will he ever come down? Make us a God that we can worship. All of them. Imagine Aaron. And you know you've got a high position. You know you believe in the God of Israel. But all these people are gathered around you. And your brother, your leader, is nowhere to be found. And you haven't heard from the Lord in a little bit of time. And you see their eagerness. You see their insistence. You see how desperately in their eyes they want a God to worship. So what do you do? Give me your gold and we'll make it. We see Aaron, unfortunately, fell into peer pressure. Think also of Herod beheading John the Immerser. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. And this is one of the most uh, unfortunate accounts, I think, we have recorded for us in the Bible. And it really is a, a test case, almost, in how sin compounds. How one sin leads to another sin, leads to another sin, leads to another sin. And we see that in the life of Herod. It wasn't just adultery for Herod. It wasn't just lust. It wasn't just pride. It ended up being murder. Matthew 14, look at verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had put him, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And we read on that John said, It wasn't lawful for you to have her. But notice verse 6, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Notice this, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So it's not just that Herod said, okay, I made a promise. It's, wait a second, I made a promise and now all these people are expecting me to do this. And Herod doesn't want to look soft in front of his friends. He doesn't want to look like he doesn't have a backbone. He doesn't want to look like he's not the one in charge. So he calls for the beheading of John the Baptist. Why? Because of the crowd. Think about Ahab, King Ahab with Jezebel. Remember King Ahab, it's described of him in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33, that God was more displeased with Ahab than he was with any other king. What a horrible reputation to have. And we find out why. If you look at 1 Kings 21, 22, 5 through 26, it explains why for us. 1 Kings 21, 25 through 26. And we're told that of all things, not only was he disliked by God because of his unrighteousness, because of his idolatry, but his very motivation or influence, if you will, is recorded for us. 1 Kings 21, 25. And this is, he does end up repenting. But notice this parenthetical insertion, 25 and 26. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab. Notice this. Whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of the Lord. Ahab, why are you so wicked? Sure, part of it's his heart. A lot of that's his own decision. 
But notice what the Bible says. He was incited by his wife. And of course, she was a priestess of one of the false gods and the daughter of a foreign king. So we see negative peer pressure in the life of Ahab, even from somebody you would think would be supportive of you. Somebody you would expect to be an encourager, your own wife. And at the end of your life, you're the worst king God has ever seen. So peer pressure can't have a negative effect. I think uh, you have to have lived under a rock to not see that that is the case. But how do we overcome it? I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I think if we look in the Bible and we look in God's word, we can get some principles that if we apply to our lives will help us overcome this kind of pressure, overcome this kind of social crockpot, if you will, that's boiling us and turning us around and sometimes causing us to do what we know isn't right. So how can we overcome it? In the first place, we need to choose our friends wisely. 1 Corinthians 15.33, it was read for us. People, this, there's an old quote, right? You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And if we choose our friends, we better, we better do that with some wisdom involved. It shouldn't just be the best-dressed people or the coolest people or the most popular people who we want to be friends with. We should think about how they might impact us. Because bad company corrupts good morals. And this word for company is interesting. It's not just a buddy. It's not just a friend. It's like a gang or a group or a clique. One commentator described it as the people I belong to. You ever felt like that? Like this is my group. This is the people I belong to. Paul says we have to be careful. If we are trying to ascend while our friends are trying to descend, sometimes we have to leave them behind. I'm reminded of a time where I was hiking a mountain with my dad, and it was very hard. And I said, Dad, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. I'm out of breath. I can't do this anymore. I want to go back to the truck. And he said, Son, that's fine, but I'm not going with you. You're going to have to stay right here, and I'm going to hike to the top. I'm going to come back down, and then we can go to the truck together. You see, my dad wasn't going to let anything stop him from getting to the top of that mountain. Not even his own son. And I remember crying because I did not want to keep going. But I ended up finishing, and we hiked that mountain. And to this day, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. A 14er in Colorado, Mount Princeton. And I didn't eat the whole day. And, uh, well, I'm not going to finish the rest of the story. I got very sick later. But think about that moment, that moment of conflict. When you're looking upward and you're trying to ascend in life and the people around you are saying, hey, I think we should go back to the truck. I think we should go back down. I think we've gone, we've gone in the forward direction far enough. And really, there, there's, there's the rub, right? We can either say, you know what, you're right. I'll descend with you. Or we can do what my dad said and said, look, you can either stay here or you can come with me. But I'm going to the top of this mountain. And sometimes our life, our faith is like that. Sometimes it's not always a steady ascend. Sometimes there's valleys and there's peaks and there's plateaus. But if we're trying to go forward and the people around us are dragging us down, sometimes we have to say, look, you can come with me or not, but I'm going forward. 
A lot of times that's in our friends. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's in our family. But we have to be careful of the company we choose. Next, we need to remember, so in the first place, choose your friends wisely. Next, we need to remember that just because something is popular doesn't mean God likes it. I'll say it again. Just because something's popular doesn't mean God likes it. Sometimes we think that, well, if everybody's doing it, it really can't be that bad. Right? Nine out of ten dentists recommend Crest. Right? Oh, I need to buy that. Not necessarily. There's, there's some other factors at hand. In fact, if you look through the Bible again and again, and you look at these things that people say, this is a good thing, this is something we should be doing, this is something I'm, I'm passionate about. Sometimes, even sometimes often, it's not necessarily good. Look at Luke 16, verse 15. Luke 16, verse 15. And notice what Jesus says there. This is right on the heels of Jesus talking about being careful about being a lover of money. He says, don't, don't be a lover of money. Keep in mind uh, that riches can have an effect on us if we don't keep them in check, right? If we don't have a proper godly outlook on them, to use money as a tool and not just valuable in and of itself. And it says that there in the text just before verse 15 that the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews were scoffing. Why? Because they were lovers of money. Notice what Jesus tells them in Luke 16, 15. And one translation reads it this way, And he told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. He says, For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Think about that. What is highly regarded by people is abominable or revolting in the sight of God. How often is that the case? All you had to do is turn on the TV and watch some commercials or even a show. And you see the things that are celebrated in our culture today. And you see the things that if we're not careful, we'll even tempted to go along with. But sometimes we never stop and say, wait a second, what does God have to say about this? I know it's popular. I know a lot of people are doing it. I know even it's a, a thing that's highly admired. But what is it in God's sight? A question we must ask ourselves. And this really gets to the heart of our motivation. In other words, why do you do the things that you do? Why do you make the decisions that you make? We have to ask ourselves, are we trying to impress other people? Are we trying to please ourselves? Or are we trying to be approved by God? In Galatians 1.10, Paul said, If I was trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Paul says, look, I'm a talented guy. I'm a smart guy. There's a lot of stuff I could do with my time. If I wanted to go around and politic and schmooze people and get a lot of people on my side and be the most popular man in the world, I could do it. He says, but if that's the life I wanted, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And there are people doubting his apostleship in Galatians. They're saying, but these men come and say this. Why aren't you as popular as them? And he says, look, I'm not here to please men. I'm not here to please people. I'm here to be a servant of Jesus Christ. In the next place, we must be resolved to do what is right. In other words, we must try to go into a situation already decided in our heads that no matter what happens, I'm going to do what God would have me to do. There's a quote out there, if you make big decisions, you have to make a lot less little decisions. 
In other words, if I can make these big sweeping resolvements at the big picture, when I get into the nitty-gritty and there's all these messy details, and I'm trying to figure out what's right, if I've already made the decision, well, I'm going to please God no matter what. A lot of those details clear up, and I see what is right because of God's word. Notice in Daniel chapter 1, if you would turn there with me, Daniel chapter 1. And notice verse, beginning verse 8. And think about Daniel's situation. He's a young man. He's ripped from his home. He's ripped from his family. He's taken to this foreign place where he doesn't know any of the leaders around him. A place he's never seen before. He's surrounded by this foreign pagan culture. Imagine how scary that would be. And he's there. And notice the resolve. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head and the king. In other words, hey, the king's food is healthy. You're going to look worse. Then Samuel, sorry, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel converted a lot of those young men to vegetarianism right then and there. And of course God's involved in this picture, but notice verse 8. This is really the key. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Hey, I might be in another context. Hey, my parents might not be here to see what's going on. Hey, the people from from the temple or or from where I worshiped God might not be able to check up on me where I am right here. But guess what? I am resolved. I'm not going to defile myself. Other translations say that Daniel, interestingly enough, he purposed in his heart or he made up his mind. You see, Daniel determined ahead of time, when I'm in this situation, I'm going to do whatever I can to do the right thing. Even if that means inconveniencing the servant or the eunuch. Even if that means putting this system to the test. He says, look, I'm resolved to do it. And sometimes, especially if we're going to be going into a situation where we know it's tempting, maybe a family reunion, maybe a friend group, a gathering, a a work event, whatever it is, to take some time ahead of time and to pray and to read our Bibles and to orient ourselves and to resolve and say, look, I'm resolved not to defile myself. And then we're in that situation, do what is necessary to get out of it. Because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, with temptation, God provides a way of escape. There is an exit. The red sign is on. But sometimes, unfortunately, we're not looking for it. But we have to be resolved. Next, we have to be willing to call our friends out. If we're going to overcome peer pressure... We have to choose our friends wisely. We have to remember that not everything that's popular is approved by God. We have to be resolved to do what is right. 
And we have to be willing to call our friends out. Have you ever been reprimanded by somebody you respect and you love? Maybe you were doing something the wrong way. And he came over and told you, hey, that's not right. My dad, as many of you know, lives in Colorado. And there was a while where he lived in a teepee on some land that he owned. And the thing about living in a teepee in Colorado is sometimes it's extremely cold. Thankfully, he had a wood-burning stove. But if you know anything about wood-burning stoves, you can't just put a whole tree in there, right? You've got to chop the wood. And I remember he was teaching me to chop the wood. And he said, okay, so we're going to chop the wood. You know, come out, we're going to chop the wood. And I pick up the axe. And I go this way across my body. And he says, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I was going to hurt somebody, right? I need to go straight up and down. But even then, I came out to chop the wood. And I wasn't wearing the right shoes, right? So there's so many little things. And my dad said, look, that's not really the way you do it. And it wasn't because he hated me. It's because he didn't want me to hurt myself or him, right? Just some eight-year-old out there wielding an axe. Not really the thing you want. Sometimes when we're with our friends, that's what happens. They're doing something. And if we're really a friend, if we're looking out for their best interests and ours, we might say something. If we know them and we have that rapport and they know where we stand on things, I think it's easier sometimes than what we make it out to be. And say, look, that's not right. And I think you know that's not right. What if we did something else? Look in Matthew 16, at beginning in verse 21. And notice how Jesus does this with his friend Peter. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, this is right after the, on this rock I shall build my church. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Imagine the audacity of Peter rebuking Jesus. Begin to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Notice this. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When we're feeling pressure from those around us to set our mind or have our actions coincide with the ways of man and not the ways of God, Jesus teaches us, hey, it's okay to rebuke. That's what friends are for. The Bible tells us, like iron sharpens iron, one friend sharpens the face of his other friend. This rebuke, this interchange, and it's done in love, but you've got to say sometimes, look, this is wrong. I'm resolved to please God, and that's what I'm going to do. In the last place, we need to remember who our most important friend is. We need to remember who our most important friend is. Some of the biggest temptation, at least for me, some of the biggest temptation with peer pressure is I want to be liked. And I think everybody does. You want to be liked. You don't want to lose a friend. But there's one friend that's so much more valuable than any other we could ever have. And that's Jesus. Look at what he says. John, John 15, if you would turn there in your Bibles, please. John 15, we'll pick up in verse number 12, right on the heels of the vines and the branches. 
And Jesus gives this commandment. We're familiar with it. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus' disciples are supposed to do. And notice what he says. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's why Jesus is the most perfect example of love. But notice this. How can we be a friend of Jesus? Absolutely. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We sing that song sometimes, what a friend we have in Jesus, in amen. What a friend we have in Jesus. And even if it results in all of our friends here on earth turning their backs against us, if we know we have a friend in Jesus, hopefully that helps us out. Hopefully we can remember, look, there's one friend that I'm most concerned with making sure that they like me and with making sure that I'm their friend. And that's Jesus. And I do that by doing what he's asked me. So some questions to ask ourselves when we're in the midst of peer pressure. We need to ask ourselves, who am I trying to please, God or man? 1 Corinthians 8.3, it says, whoever loves God, the same is known by God. A lot of people want to be known by other people. Our goal should be to be known by God. And when we love God, he knows us and he's our friend. Another question we must ask ourselves is, where do I derive my self-worth or my value? Am I valuable because of how large my friend group is? Am I valuable because of how other people view me? Or am I valuable because God has made me in his image? Because Jesus Christ died and bled for me because I'm a member of his body. If I derive my value from these spiritual objective realities, I'm not as tossed to and fro by the waves of, of peer groups and of social pressure. We must ask ourselves, am I willing to be unpopular to do what is right? And I think most of us would answer that question in the affirmative, but it's still a temptation almost every day. Am I willing to be unpopular to do what is right? Next, we must ask ourselves, who has an influence on me, either for positive or for negative? Who am I influenced by? Sometimes you're influenced by somebody and you don't even realize it. But we need to take that inventory and say, who am I looking up to? Who do I want to be like? Who am I trying to model my life after? We need to be on guard. Ephesians 5.15 tells us to walk carefully, to look how we're living our lives, and to try each day to live a life pleasing to Jesus. Peer pressure will not relent anytime soon, but let's try to get it from good sources. Let's encourage one another as a body of Christ. Stir one another up to love and good works. That's a good kind of peer pressure. And we do that by being here, by being engaged, by being involved in each other's lives. And that's something that I hope we all can enjoy. And even though peer pressure is an unescapable aspect of social interaction, peer pressure, no matter how strong, can never take away your power to choose for yourself. We can still decide to swim upstream when needed and do what God would have us to do, no matter what the people around us are saying. If we choose our friends wisely, remember that sometimes what is popular isn't liked by God. Remember that we need to decide ahead of time to please God. Be willing to speak out when needed. We can help, or God will help us overcome peer pressure. The good news is for me and for you that we don't necessarily have to be a product of our environment. We can allow God to come into our lives to transform us, to turn us into lights shining for him in this world. And if you're already a light shining for God, don't let the negative influence around you extinguish your glow. Be committed to stand for God 
no matter what happens. If you hear this lesson and you feel like you're falling to peer pressure, be a friend of Jesus. Come to him, and he will grant you forgiveness. He will grant you a new life. He will grant you the strength needed to overcome the pressure that exists around us. You know, I think about that study in that, that poor guy who just followed the people in front of him and just said the wrong thing just because everybody else did it. And that's silly. That's just with cards. That's just in an experiment. But there's a lot of people lined up in front of us in life and in history who unfortunately have done the wrong thing, who have unfortunately pointed and said this is right when it's wrong. But us, guided by God's word, we can be different. We can stand up to prayer pressure and we say, I'm going to be a friend of Jesus. I'm going to do what he asked me to do. And the blessings will be plenty. So if you need to come forward to start a friendship with Jesus, to, to help him, to let him help you overcome peer pressure, do that now. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Allow him to transform you. Come to him on his terms by repenting of your sins, by confessing his name, by being buried with him in baptism. And then the peers that pressure you, hopefully, are good influences, not only of God, but of his children. Maybe you're already washing the blood of the Lamb, but you struggle. You struggle with being influenced by our wicked culture. You struggle by being influenced in whatever your sphere of life is. We're here to help you. We're here to be a shoulder to lean on, a shoulder to cry on if need be. We're here to be a positive influence in your life, not because we're perfect, but because we're all ascending that hill together. Would you come now if you have the need while we sing?